0: Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Uh, If you're a visitor, my name's Steve. I'm the leader of the church, um, well, alongside lots of other people. Um, This morning, I was wandering in, and um, I've had a kind of busy week. Uh, All sorts of things have happened, and you know how things are. They all get on top of you, and you're kind of struggling to prepare for this and prepare for that and prepare for something else. I had to go to Southport yesterday and speak at a conference, and I was, uh, you know, so it... It got to early uh, this morning and I was sat down and I was thinking about... um, Oh, can you switch over to this um, uh, screen? I was thinking about this story that we're going to look at this morning. um, The story of Noah and the ark. Um, For those of you who are here for the first time, we're doing this series on these big stories at the beginning of Genesis, which people tend to not understand. And we called the series, Let There Be Light... Because the story of Genesis chapter 1, was the world really made in six days? Is that how we understand it or not? Is this literally true or metaphorically true and what does it mean? And then there's Adam and his rib and there's Eve and there's the apple and there's a talking serpent and etc. etc. And then there's Cain and Abel and the first murder ever, which comes out of the first act of worship ever. And then we get to this story about Noah and this big boat and uh, him having to get all the, all the animals in the whole world. Not just the clean animals, as it says in the reading, but all the creeping ones. I just learned this morning on Radio 4 that there are 21,000 types of ants in England because it was the Wimbledon story you know they all invaded Wimbledon 21,000 types just imagine Noah going no no I found 19,988 types of ants but I've got to get the last two or whatever it is how did he do all that get all these animals on this boat and look after them and what's more he had to sex them as well because he had to have a male and female version I've learned about sexting uh, guinea pigs because we've got a load of guinea pigs across on the farm. Roddy is the expert. um, And... Roddy's the expert on sexting guinea pigs. But when I was there on Friday... (laughs) sexing. Oh, yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Sorry, Roddy. Apologies to Roddy. Roddy. But actually... I shouldn't apologize to Ruddy too much because just a few weeks ago we only had two guinea pigs. How many, how many have we got now? We've got eight. <laughs> it's in about four weeks. It's amazing. So there's something we're doing right or wrong, isn't there? Just imagine Noah's problem. In getting all of these animals onto the ark and making sure that he had male and female, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and every kind of species in the whole world, he's got to get them all there. He's got to get them on the ark, and then he's got to get them off again. And some of these animals don't like each other very much, and some of them eat each other for lunch or breakfast or <laughs> supper. It's tough, isn't it, being Noah? So what do, we make of this, uh, what do we make of this story? How does it fit in? So what we've been doing over these weeks, if you're new to this, and uh, like Flick says, you can get the um, uh, podcasts of previous um, talks, we're looking at these giant stories at the beginning of Genesis and asking if they're relevant, what do they mean? If they're not literally true, perhaps they're literally true, but if they're not literally true, why are they there, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And back to what I was saying, I was, um, I was um, thinking about all this and I was thinking about what I'm going to say, which I'll say in a, a moment, and um, I was thinking uh, this morning again about how do I make that point again to you that I hope I've been trying to make over these last few weeks, but I know it's a hard point to get hold of. You see, these stories in Genesis, they are huge cultural stories that belong to the ancient Near East because every society in the world has stories that underpin its belief structure. It's impossible for a society to exist without narratives that tell it what it is and what it believes. And in actual fact, all of these stories, as we've learnt in previous weeks, are stories that were borrowed from other cultures and added to and subtracted from, edited and retold and made new. So that the Genesis chapter one story is a retelling of the Babylonian creation myth, as it's called, which was the powerful super race narrative about creation uh, in the Near East, in Mesopotamia at the time. But the biblical writers and folk uh, storytellers, because it would have been told as a story before it was ever written down in all of these cultures, they get hold of this story and they rework it and they edit it a bit and they add bits and they subtract bits. And in that, they recreate it and give it new and powerful meaning. But its meaning is truly only fully known to the person who knows the original story. You've got to know the Babylonian creation story, myth, in order to see how new and dynamic the Genesis poem is. And if you understand both stories, the lights go on, let there be light, and you go, ah, that's what they're subverting, that's what they're changing, this is the depth they're bringing. Does that make sense? So we have to look at these things really carefully. But the problem is, the Babylonian creation myth is called the Babylonian creation myth. And and some people go, ah, it's a myth. Are you saying the Bible is a myth? And I've tried, you know, I've used other words these last three or four weeks. I've talked about legends and parables. Jesus told parables. They were true, but not literally true. The good Samaritan teaches us a great truth but it's not literally true. It's just a story that contains a great truth. And when I was wandering in this morning, Mark, my good friend there, he said to me, you know, what you should say is, so this is what I should say. (laughs) Mark just wandered past. He said, it's like animal farm. And there's a great, because, you know, I don't want anybody to think, because we call these things myths, myth has changed its meaning in our culture to being not True but myth never meant not true. It meant really, really importantly true and foundational to what a culture believes. So the Babylonian creation myth wasn't a silly story. It was a story that everybody understood had deep truths in. And as Mark wandered past, he said, tell them about, tell everybody it's like Animal Farm. And I thought, well, oh, that's a good point. So it is like Animal Farm. There you are, I've told you. Now, you probably know, I, I only know this because I've got that sad kind of head, that Animal Farm was written in 1945. It was written, at the, uh, to what, it was written during the Second World War by George Orwell, and it was published in 1945. It was originally called, actually, you have to check this out if my memory serves me best, it was originally called Animal Farm, a Fairy Tale. Uh, that was what it was originally published under. And there's that, you know, the animals take over the farm, don't they? So it's called Manor Farm and um, Old Boar, Old Major. Old Major is an old boar, as in pig. And uh, he teaches the animals that they should be in control. All animals are equal. Do you remember that from school? All animals are equal. And they take over the farm, but then there are two new pigs... Snowball and Napoleon. And Snowball and Napoleon lead the animals forward, and they slowly come to a doctrine that all animals are equal, but pigs are more equal than all other animals. And then they fight together, they become rivals, and Napoleon does away with Snowball, and he becomes a new dictator. Do you remember the story? And of course, George Orwell was a socialist, and Stalin... He opposed Stalin and communist Russia. And everybody knew that this was really a story about communism where everyone is equal but the leaders are more equal than others and everyone else gets put down and exterminated if they say the wrong thing at the wrong time. That's what a myth is. That's what a parable is. That's a legend. And that's what these stories are about. They are foundational. They're all-important. It's impossible, actually, to understand the development of human civilization, which possibly began in Mesopotamia, without understanding these uh, deep uh, stories. So, um, I hope that makes sense. This, there it is, is a tablet that you can actually go and see in the British Museum. It's called Tablet 11, And it's Tablet 11 of um, what's known as the Epic of Gilgamesh. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Epic of Gilgamesh. It was dug up in Mosul, which, as you you know, if you've been here these weeks, this should all begin to be linking together. And you go, ah, we talked about that the other week when we talked about this and we talked about this. So it begins to all link together. These big stories leading up to the call of Abraham, we'll talk about him in a minute, and the formation of Israel as a light to the nations, a moral light to the nations, they're so foundational to everything we do in this community, or any church should be doing, or any society should be doing, that you can't do without them. They are underpinning. So, this is what's called Tablet 11, and uh, it's uh, from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I'll tell you a little about about in a minute. And it's in the British Museum, and it came to the British Museum in uh, 1850, 1851. So, uh, it comes, it it was discovered in Mosul. Mosul was, in the 7th century BC, Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian superpower who ruled the Mesopotamian area then. Uh, The Sumerians were followed by the Babylonians, followed by the uh, Assyrians. These were the superpowers. We're at a shift in superpower age now. The Americans have been the superpower. The superpower before that uh, was Britain. The British Empire, and the British Empire has waned, and no doubt we're living through a time when the American Empire is waning. In fact, we may be living through a time when there's a whole shift away from the power of the West. Because everybody in this room has grown up believing the West leads. Probably not true anymore. I would guess very definitely not likely to be true 50 years from now. So we're constantly adjusting. The world's massively changing all the time. So this is Tablet 11. And Tablet 11 of the Epic of Gilgamesh has on it a flood story. So if you could read Akkadian, Akkadian as it's sometimes called, Akkadian, which is old Babylonian. It's cuneiform, you know, it's all kind of little shapes. But if you could read that, that is the flood story. But it's not the one in the Bible. It's a completely different flood story. And Gilgamesh is the hero of that story. And I'll tell you a little bit uh, more about that in a moment. But for now, let me say this. That the story of Noah and the ark in the Bible is one of at least 25, I did a little count up yesterday on the train on the way to Southport, Right? At least one of 25 flood stories that I know about. At least one of 25. Most of them older than the story about Noah that we have in, in the Bible. But we also know this. Though the story of Noah tells us that God flooded the whole earth and only Noah survived, here's the fact we know that since the rise of Homo sapiens, there has never been a global flood. And the reason we know that is archaeology. If there is a global flood, you get a gap in human activity and you get a giveaway um, uh, kind of a slice of clay with no human activity in it. There is no, there has been no global flood. There have been lots of localised floods, and you can see that from the fossil record again, and this, it's, it's the telltale clay that you're always looking for with no human activity. There have been lots of floods, but they've all been localised or regionalized. There is no global flood because they happen at different times to one another in different places. There's been no global flood, but like I've just said, there are at least 25, 26 more um, stories of global floods, which is quite incredible. And there are more stories uh, coming up all the time. Now, though I'd say that's tablet 11 of the Gilgamesh epic, from Mosul in the 1850s, we brought back to this country more than 20,000 tablets. So it's not like this was written down once. Why did we bring 20,000 tablets back from Mosul? Because there was a king of Assyria who had his library in Mosul. Mosul. His name is Ashabonana. Ashabonanipal. Yeah, that's it. King You Check him out, see if I pronounced it right. But King Ashurbanipal, he had a famous library. And in the 1850s, his library was discovered and 20,000 plus tablets came back to England from there, to London. But they also went to other places around the world. And since then, that was in the 1850s, we've been discovering new tablets, clay tablets, all of the time. So, there was no universal flood, But there are loads of stories about floods. And they're all kind of similar. They all are similar. They all say there was a universal flood. And they all say one man and his family escaped. But the man is always different. The guy in the Bible is Noah. And his wife and his sons. And two of every type of animal on earth. The man's always different. But there's always a family that su- survived this worldwide deluge. Um, so, what's is this historical? Well, here's the next thing. Although you get, in my view, some crackers Christians who are constantly trying to dig up the ark, do you know, and the, they've been doing it all my life and have never found it. Do you know, it's kind of like. There's always those stories out there. The fact is that the Palestine area has never been flooded. We know that. Well, actually, if you go, you know that. It's kind of hot and hilly. It's got loads of mountains, and, you know, it's, it's very hot and dry and hilly. And, I, and, and in, a, in a thing, that, in something we we'll talk about in just a moment or two, there's um, actually near Jericho that's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, there's uh, another city called uh, uh, Megiddo, And Megiddo, though it's never mentioned in the Bible, well, actually it is by another name, perhaps I'll say that in a moment, um, but Megiddo, although it's never mentioned in the Bible, had been in existence for at least 9,000 years, uh, has been in existence for at least 9,000 years, Seven thousand years before Jesus, they'd been Megiddo had been there. Megiddo died as a city. It was once a powerful city, and it died as a city about five hundred years before Jesus was born. And um, but now, since nineteen forty-eight, it's come. It's become a kibbutz. You can go to Megiddo again now, and there's about a thousand people that live on this kibbutz. But it's one of the most ancient and important cities uh, in Israel. Um, it is in the Bible because under its Greek name it's called Armageddon. And it's where the Bible says the last, uh, again, uh, uh, it's, it's um, philosophical, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's um, metaphor, but it says the last battle will be in Armageddon. Armageddon is the Greek name for Medidou. Um, so, the other interesting thing about that place, while I'm on it because I forget, is that uh, one of the most recent versions, this becomes critical in a moment, of, of these tablets was dug up there in Israel. One of the most recent tablets of the Gilgamesh epic was dug up in Israel quite recently. That will become important in a minute. Now, so where did this flood happen? Remember the other week when I said... Uh, Mesopotamia and Hippopotamus have got the same middle, the potter bit, you know. Mesa, <laughs> I mean, Mesopotamia, a, Hippopotamus. The potter means river. And Hippopotamus means, probably, many of you will probably know this, horse of the river. A hip, Hippopotamus is horse of the river. Mesopotamia is the land of the river or rivers? It's got a plural end. It's the land of the rivers, and we said there are these two great rivers: the Tigris and the—that's uh, it, euphrates River. Of course, someone was listening. That's very good. Tigris and the Euphrates River, and Mesopotamia is low-lying, uh, flat plain, and it's likely to flood. And in actual fact, as we dig down, not me personally, but as, uh, as, as, as scholars have dug down and, you know, got their boots on, we discover there are loads of uh, floods that took place in that area. Lots and lots of floods where there's no human activity, but once again, never one that covered everywhere. Different times. So it, we, it makes sense to believe that these flood stories originated in Mesopotamia because it's one of the birthplaces of civilization. Uh, The Gilgamesh story in its pre-existing forms, I'll explain that in a minute, goes back at least um, to uh, 4,000, 5,000 years. And there were floods that happened there. Um, Now... The thing about the epic of Gilgamesh, I, I, I ought to say this. I probably said this the other uh, week. A guy who used to live in the East End, It's called George Smith, he's dead now. In the 1850s, he was taken on by the, the uh, British Museum and, um, and they, they, uh, they, they, he became an assistant to one of the bosses and then the, an, uh, an equal, et cetera, et cetera, And he turned out to be one of the greatest Assyriologists that the world has ever known. He learned cuneiform and he learned Akkadian and he learned the uh, Assyrian languages, George Smith. And they say about George Smith, I think it was in 1861 when he finally deciphered this tablet, this exact tablet, and he realized it was a story of a flood, a worldwide flood, just like the book of Genesis and just like Noah featuring someone else altogether. And they say that he was so excited that he stripped naked and he danced round the room. Because he realised the implications of this for the whole world. And indeed, I think I did say last time, when he finally got to read this to the public, the Prime Minister came to the reading. In fact, it was debated and discussed around the world. Now, you might think that this, all this is a threat to faith. You know, if the Bible says it was Noah in this boat, and we now know that it's all in the epic of Gilgamesh that was written a long time before, and we can see how this story evolved, because we got tablets from almost every century. So we can see that the names of the heroes slowly evolve and change, and the details of the story slowly evolve and change. And we know that the Noah story isn't as old as these tablets. So we know that the Noah story is so similar to them, it can't like be a coincidence you know they share so much so you may say that's a terrible blow to faith well it's not a blow to faith at all in actual fact it underpins faith the reason we're doing all of this because this is about christianity for intelligent thinking people in the 21st century rather than a bunch of doll heads who have to go around kind of thinking i've got to have my faith over here and science over here because i can't bring them together by bringing these stories together, actually, we're energized, and uh, we are inspired, and we're challenged, as I hope you'll see in the next few minutes, and we think again about what our civilization is about and where it's going. This challenges us. In, in 1521, a very famous man called William Tyndale, you heard of him, the Bible translator? He, he, he um, oh, is this stopped? This is just about to die, so I'm going to use this. In, in 1521, William Tyndale, you know, the famous Bible translator, he hadn't translated the Bible yet. He'd, he'd studied at Cambridge, and he got a job teaching. Um, you could only study theology at Cambridge then, so, you know, so he'd become a theologian. And he got a job down uh, in, near Gloucester in a village teaching. And um, he, he hated the fact that the priests... Uh, taught in Latin and probably didn't understand Latin themselves and none of the people understood the Bible and none of the people could read the Bible. He hated it and he used to go to Bristol Cathedral and he used to stand outside Bristol Cathedral and he used to hold public meetings because he felt that people should know, people should know the truth and it got him into a load of trouble. Um, But in the end, as you know, William Tyndale translated the Bible into English and uh, then uh, was uh, uh, strangled and burnt because of doing that, you know, how appalling that people should be able to read this thing. But um, but, uh, Tyndale famously said this one day, you probably know this quote, some of you, he famously said to a priest who was angry with him, he said, If God allows me to live long enough, I will ensure that every ploughboy, remember England's agrarian society, you know, everybody's out there looking after the sheep. He says, I will ensure that every ploughboy understands more of the Bible than you do. And he translates the Bible into English. And I've often thought about that because I think William Tindall, an extraordinary man, you should read about him. But here's the thing. If I could have a conversation with him, do, you know, I, I'm, do you, you know, I'm not trying to be cheeky or anything. I think society through the ages is a conversation though, isn't it? And we've all got to play our part in the ongoing conversation. We have our moment in the sun. We are only in the sun for a moment and our moment, you know, you're a long time dead is another way of saying it. So we all bring something to the conversation of civilization and society while we're here. And then we leave behind what we create, and we leave it to others to build on. So William Tyndale has done this thing, and he says, I'm going to put the Bible into English because then everyone will understand it. And the question I'd like to say to William, with all the hindsight that we've got of 500 years, is but when you put the Bible into people's language, it doesn't mean they'll understand it. It just means they'll read it. They probably misunderstand it, and then with their misunderstandings, persecute other people. Has that not happened? So we read it and we use it as a weapon on others. So it's not just about reading it, it's about understanding it. It's about delving into it. And so that's what all this um, that's what all of this has to be about. So I say again looking into the bible in this way and confronting the fact that there were stories of the flood around long time before noah's story was around and all the heroes were different stories isn't it doesn't disturb faith actually it makes it stronger you think these stories were key to the whole of civilization so i can engage with them and my my understanding of life grows stronger um the Bible is full of, it's, it's a salvation story. That's what it is. The whole of the Bible is one salvation story. There are lots of salvation stories on offer through history, not just the biblical version of salvation. By salvation, I don't just mean life after death. I mean life before death. I mean life now. I mean salvation now, like living on purpose rather than wasting your years away. The Bible offers a salvation story. There are other salvation stories on offer. Here's a really dominant one in society. People say, I don't do religion and I don't do faith. And then you watch them and they're constantly shopping. They're shopping online. They're shopping in shops. We are addicted to consumerism. Consumerism is a salvation story. So consumerism tells you if you get this, drive that, wear this, go here, hang out with those people, go to this bar, drink these drinks, you will be complete. It's a pretty uh, deficit salvation story because it only ever promises salvation in this life. It doesn't promise anything else. But even in this life, its message is salvation is in the power of your wallet. And then we wonder about why the inequalities in society grow. Um, somebody said uh, something in my hearing the other day, and I thought it was great. They said, everybody, everybody um, will moan about all the flashy buildings going up along the South Bank where, you know, people invest and they buy and then they never live in them and they stand empty whilst the homeless are homeless and people are cramped and squashed into houses that aren't fit to live in and, you know, there aren't enough bedrooms. Everyone will go on about that. But then some flashy new big brand, a cafe or restaurant opens and everyone goes to eating it or drinking it. See, same thing. I'm going to get what I can get rather than invest in the life of a community. It's the same basic thing. Consumerism as a salvation story doesn't really work for any of the individuals that pursue it and certainly doesn't work for any of the individuals that they leave behind as they pursue it. Well, anyway, I've been talking long enough, so let me tell you about one or two of the similarities between Noah and then some big differences. Because, you see, you've got to compare and contrast. So when the Bible rewrites the, uh, the flood epic, the Gilgamesh epic, and all of the precursors to the Gilgamesh epic, when it rewrites it, you can judge something by the similarities, but you can also, and most importantly, judge what the writer's trying to say by the way they subvert the well-known story. Just like Animal Farm is a well-known story in our society, if you tell the story of Animal Farm and then tell it with a twist, it's the twist that packs the punch. Does that make sense? So you've got to ask, what's the twist that packs the punch? Well, in all of these iterations of um, flood stories, deluge stories, there's always one family that gets saved. It's remarkable. There's always a boat it's a remarkable. There's always the dimensions of the boat. It's remarkable. Do you know, there's only one place in the whole of the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, the Bible, where the word for, because Noah's told to put pitch, a tar, pitch on the boat, yeah? The, that is the only place in the whole of the Old Testament where that word appears. The only other known place in all history, where that word appears is in that tablet found in Mosul. The epic of Gilgamesh uses exactly the same word. And the word isn't found anywhere else. That's why we... thats I mean, there are hundreds of reasons why we know these stories are dependent and intermeshed with each other. I ought to say... That's because I meant to say. I said I mentioned Abraham. Where was Abraham born? You don't have to know, you know, people don't always do that, don't they? They stand up in the front and say, you know, name Jesus' twelve disciples. You know, like, where was Abraham born? What a random question to throw at you, all right? (laughs) Abraham was born in a city called Ur, yeah? Where is Ur? It's in Mesopotamia. It's one of the chief cities of Mesopotamia. Abraham left Ur and he journeyed and formed Israel. And scholars believe that what happened was Abraham brought all of these stories he'd grown up with with him not necessarily written down. These were his childhood stories. So he travels from Mesopotamia, and he travels towards this promised land to found this new civilization, and he carries with him all the stories of his childhood. And he retells them, but he begins to retell them with a new twist. And that's how the tradition gets carried across, which is why in um, in, uh, in Megiddo the city that I've talked about, you find a tablet with the story of Gilgamesh on, right in the middle of Israel. Because these stories were interwoven. So, in all of the stories, there's one family that gets saved, there's always a boat, there's always dimensions, uh, there's this pitch thing, a uh, tar thing, you always take the animals on, all the animals, male and female, uh, you've got to cram them in somehow, um, then uh, there's always um, uh, there's always the annihilation of the whole of humanity. There's a really moving passage in in Gil- Gilgamesh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it just says it just says that silence was everywhere, and humanity had returned to dust. And then there's one man who survives the uh, story. Uh, Uh, in uh, the epic of Gilgamesh, is called Utapisti. Utapisti. And I'll tell you about him in a minute because it's very important. Utapisti, he sits with Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was a king who hadn't ruled very well, and he goes on this epic journey to find eternal life, and he traces the sun, and he traces the sun, oh, uh, there's lots more in the epic at Gilgamesh, it's not just a flood story, it's lots of stories, and um, he traces the sun all the way to this distant land, because he's heard that there's a man who's learned to live forever, and he crosses the sea of death, and he follows the sun, and in the end he finds Utamapisti with his wife, and he says to Utamapisti, you have the eternal se- the et- secret of eternal life, I want it. He is the king of Babylon, you know. He's, he's a powerful man. And, um, and w- what happens is, Utamipishti says to him, you can't have the secret of eternal life. And Gilgamesh says, I want it. I need the secret of eternal life. And Utamipishti says, I'm sorry, you can't have it. Well, says Gilgamesh, to uh, Utama Pisti, you've got the secret of eternal life. If you've got the secret, tell me and I'll have it. And Utama Pisti says to him, I haven't got the secret of eternal life. It was a one-off many years ago, many, many, many eons ago. It's, uh, it's, it's something that can't be passed on. He said, the gods spoke to me and told me to build an ark. And they told me that there was a flood coming and humanity was going to be wiped out. But if I built the boat... I would survive and the gods told me to take on my wife and some craftsmen and all the animals and I did that and in return the god who caused the floods who wanted to wipe out creation in in the story of Gilgamesh I'll tell you there's there's a, a there's a god called Enlil, and he tries to wipe out the whole of humanity and there's one called Ea. And E.A. hears what Enel's doing, because the gods all fight one another, and E.A. whispers it to Utama Pisti and says, this god's trying to wipe out the earth, get ready, get a boat, get on it. After the flood, um, Enel repents of the fact that he was trying to wipe everyone out, comes to see Uta Mepiste and his wife, gets them to kneel down and touches them and said, I give you the secret of eternal life. It's just for you and no one else. It can never be passed on. So Uta Mepiste tells Gilgamesh this, and, and Gilgamesh is downcast. And then as he's returning to his city to be a better king, hopefully, because he's chasing immortality, um, Uta Mepiste says to him, bah! Before you go, I have heard that down at the bottom of the sea, there is a secret magic plant. And if you dive down and get this secret magic plant, it will give you the secret of eternal youth. Wow, says uh, Gilgamesh. And this is a poem, you would take it. So I'm uh, kind of just, you know, doing my version of it. And so, um, so Gilgamesh dives down to the bottom of the ocean. He gets this plant, which is the secret of eternal life plant. He brings it up to the surface, and he's he's dived, and he's hot, so he wants to cool off. So he goes to get a kind of shower in a cool spring. But whilst he's in the spring, the serpent, there's the serpent always popping up. Eve had a serpent, you know, and now there's a serpent popping up again. The serpent nicks the plants, lives forever uh, with no legs, And Gilgamesh is left with nothing. So the story of Gilgamesh, this, is about the search for eternal life to live forever. Does that make sense? Well, there's some similarities. Here are the differences. There's only two that I want to tell you about. The first is this. In this epic, uh, and the epics around it, from from Mesopotamia, the gods war and fight and hate one another and they decide to cause a flood and the reason, well some of them decide to cause a flood and the reason they cause a flood is because they can't get any sleep. In another document that goes with this called Enuma Elish which we talked about, it says explicitly the gods were so angry because humans made such a racket. They were all down on the earth, they were all fighting with each other, they were all falling out with each other, they were all envious of one another, they were all Im- they were immoral, they were I- unjust, they used one another, and the gods said, oh mate, this racket is driving us mad. We're going to get rid of them. And that's uh, where, where it happens. The flood comes out of the gods' annoyance with Humanity. In the story that Simon read a little bit of, and the and the, and the flood story stretches over three chapters, so that it was just a little insert. There's a completely different reason for for the flood, and it's injustice. It's not noise, and we want to get sleep. And these humans that we created, you know, by mistake. Remember, they created them by mistake. Another week, they're annoying us. It's injustice. And the word that's used is in—it's used constantly in justice. And in Simon's reading, which you'll have to uh, look at yourself, it says that the flood was caused because the waters beneath the earth and under the foundations of the earth sprung up. The waters beneath the earth sprung up, and the waters above the earth descended. Uh, it, Simon read this. You trust me, and and they were coming together, and they caused a flood. Now, what did I? tell you this isn't a question about Genesis chapter 1 if you read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 1 it says the waters beneath the firmament and the waters above the firmament do you remember I said the ancient view of the world there was water underneath and there was water above and what God does is he out of the chaos of water everywhere he creates So the waters are divided. Do you know Genesis chapter 1? It says God divided the waters above the earth and the waters beneath the earth. And out of the chaos, primordial chaos, he creates meaning and purpose and he gives life. Do you remember that? You remember that Genesis says that. Here in Noah book of Noah, it says all of this injustice is going on everywhere and people are putting down other people and they're misusing them and abusing them and mistreating them. So it's not that the gods got angry with a bit of noise, it's that God says justice must reign and when justice doesn't reign it's as though chaos closes in again. And that's why those words which are taken from a It's a bit complicated. We know that the Genesis account we have of Noah isn't one story. It's several different biblical stories put together as well. We know that the editor of Genesis has taken bits from different places. Anyway, the point is this. The chaos begins to close in again. The waters above the earth and the waters beneath the earth that God has driven back to create society in the first place begin to creep back. They begin to take back control. And humanity is being stifled and it's being wiped out. Chaos is descending again because this is the point and it's unique. It's in no other flood story. There is meaning and purpose rather than chaos. It's not just the gods getting upset. It's the God of the whole of heaven and earth says, when you disregard other human beings and society becomes selfish and consumerism becomes everything and what you want becomes the only thing that matters, what happens is the forces of chaos begin to creep in again and strangle humanity and take their lives. But, says God, I will never give in to that. And at the end of the story, after the flood, after the 40 days um, uh, rain and the 150 days that the flood takes and the flood subsides, God gives Noah a promise. And it's the promise of the rainbow. In all Greek mythology... And Mesopotamian mythology, the rainbow was a weapon. It was a bow. And it was the weapon of the gods to use on humanity. It was well known for that. The weapon of the gods. There it was in the sky. The gods have got it in for you. But in the story of Genesis, the bow that's been the symbol of the gods' hatred for humanity... And disregard of humanity is taken and turned into a gentle promise that God is with all people, that all people are made in his image, that he will not wipe them out. But the challenge comes that whenever we disregard the rights of another, whenever our society becomes about the rich and not the poor, when we move to a place where we can live with relative poverty and say, well, I have my holidays and I live in a great apartment and I've got all the latest stuff and I know those people down the road have nothing and I know they're squashed in and I know their flats damp and I know they've not got enough uh, bedrooms for their kids, and I know they can't afford a holiday, and I know they can't afford to shop in the streets round here anymore. And I know that hotel land is taking over, but I can go sit in all of the dining rooms and eat in them. What the Genesis story is saying that when we become like that, and injustice creeps in, the waters of chaos are beginning to close around humanity and stifle life again. And the story is saying, but the promise of the bow, not the weapon of the bow, is always with us. But our responsibility is to join in. And the last thing is if you read the chapter after the story of Noah, you'll discover it's just a table of the nations. And God says to Noah, be fruitful, multiply. He repeats the promise to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, And he sets out the table of the nations. The story is saying this. All humanity in its diversity is a brotherhood, a sisterhood. We are called to support one another and work for one another. Doing our own thing in our own corner, spending our own resources on ourselves. Having no social conscience. This simply makes the waters of chaos descend again. Each one of us is called to take the life that we have, the moments, the days we have, our moment in the sun, and use that moment in the sun. Yesterday, as a a story to finish with, yesterday, the Lions um, drew with the All Blacks and leveled the series. Did anyone watch it? Yeah? Fantastic. Fantastic. You know, the All Blacks, though we uh, we drew with them, which was amazing, they're having a bit of a struggle, are, as you know, the greatest rugby team in the history of rugby on the planet. They're just fantastic. And um, I had the opportunity a couple of years ago with Cornelia, my wife, to spend an evening with Jonah Lomu, who's probably the greatest rugby player ever you know just ran over people didn't he you know (laughs) kind of and I spent an evening with him in when I was in New Zealand and uh, Jonah Lomu said this he said this you never see an all black take their shirt off at the end of the game if they score a try they never rip off their shirt like other sportsmen do and throw it somewhere and at the end of the game they never take off their shirt and exchange it with the other team They never, you've never seen an all-black do that. And he said to me, it's because of this. The all-black jersey you wear is sacred. He said, before the match, you go on your own to the room where the jerseys are, and the jersey is on the chair, it's never on the floor. And each player goes on their own, into the room on their own. They've been set out by the guy who just sets out the jerseys. And you bend down and you lift up the jersey and you look at the number and you remember all the people who've worn this jersey before. And then you put the jersey on and you pray. And you pray that when you return the jersey to the chair, it will be in a better place than it was when you put it on. You pick up this sacred jersey and you have the honor of wearing it for your moment in the sun. But you must return it to the chair for the next player to play in that jersey. What the story of Noah is saying is this. We have our moment in the sun and we're all wearing the jersey. And our job is to return the jersey with credit. We live in this moment and your life counts. And the way we live leaves society. In a stronger or a weaker place really, really matters. Because if we don't leave the Jersey in a better place, the waters of chaos close in. Let me pray for you. Thank you. 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 Lord, we thank you for one another. I thank you for everyone in this hall this morning. We thank you that you've given to us all this moment in the sun, that each one of us gets to pick up the sacred jersey of life and to wear it. We pray that what we do with that jersey may be something significant. We pray that as we hand over the jersey of life to the next generation, we will leave that jersey in a better place. We will leave this community in a better place. We will leave our city, our nation in a better place. Help us to move away from the concerns of our individuality towards the concern of legacy, of what we leave. We thank you for the majesty of creation, that the waters of chaos were divided in Genesis 1 and life comes. We know that when we disregard others, when we live for ourselves, when injustice becomes just a thing that's part of life, and no one questions it. The waters of chaos are closing in again. Well, you've given us your promise, the promise of grace that you'll always be with us. But we hear too the challenge to pick up the jersey, to carry the flag, to fight for justice and inclusion. This is our prayer, Lord. Be with us in our endeavor. And walk with us and give us your grace. Amen.